thanks for joining us for TCC at Home. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving, that you enjoyed some good food and, and hopefully some time with people that you love. Uh, today we begin uh, the season of Advent. Uh, for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke, chapters 1 and 2, considering uh, the birth narrative of Jesus Christ. Advent is a time of of longing and anticipation. Uh, the first advent was marked by a longing for the Messiah to come, for the Savior to come, in a, in a sense of anticipation of the redemption and the salvation that God would bring through that promised Savior. Well, today we live between the first advent, the first coming of Christ, and the, and the last advent, the, the return of Christ. And, and today, even as we come into the season of advent, it's still marked by a sense of longing and a sense of anticipation. Uh, and, and really, uh, this year, this Christmas, uh, has been one unlike uh, any other. Uh, in fact, you could accurately describe it as unexpected. I think we all feel that way as we think about 2020 uh, and as we come to this Christmas season. I think in some ways we're excited to celebrate Christmas. I, I know in our house this year, because it's 2020, we thought, you know what, we just need to set up our Christmas decorations before Thanksgiving this year just to uh, enjoy a little bit of the Christmas cheer uh, as long as we can. And I think that reflects the attitudes and the hearts of many, that there's a sense of excitement about celebrating Christmas, and yet Christmas is going to be um, unexpected in many ways. It's going to look different in many ways, and, and, and for many of us, we're excited just to turn the chapter on this year and get to the next year. Uh, and so as I think about this series, as we look at Luke chapters 1 and 2, uh, we've entitled our Advent series, Unexpected Christmas, because it is fitting for the Christmas that we find ourselves about to celebrate, but it's also fitting for the first Advent, for the first Christmas, as we look at it in the Gospel of Luke. It was an unexpected time, and God working in unexpected ways to bring about his promised redemption and salvation. And, and as we look at the unexpected Christmas in Luke chapters 1 and 2, my prayer is that we get a glimpse, a bigger glimpse of who God is and, and how he calls us to follow him as we walk through our own unexpected Christmas this year in 2020. And so today we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 verses 5 through 25 and then we're going to uh, go to the end of Luke chapter 1 in verses 57 through 80. Uh, as we begin Advent, we're going to begin in an unexpected place. Uh, as we look to the Gospel of Luke, after Luke introduces his Gospel and tells us that he's writing uh, to this uh, believer named Theophilus, seeking to uh, ground his faith in the story of what really happened through Jesus, uh, he's going to bring us first, not to Jesus, but to John the Baptist. And that's really the unexpected starting point of, of Advent and of the Gospel of Luke is that we find ourselves uh, hearing about and learning about the birth of John the Baptist. And so I want to read for us uh, verses 5 through uh, 25. We're going to um, read through it here at the beginning because uh, we're going to, to really look at, a, at different places throughout our sermon. Uh, and so begin with me by looking in verse 5 uh, of Luke chapter 1. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, 
because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children to Israel and to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until that day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. In Luke chapter 1, as we think about the birth of John the Baptist, I, I want us to, uh, to see uh, this picture of, of waiting, uh, a weariness in waiting. And, and, and also, along with this weariness of waiting is the pain of personal disappointment that marks the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth. So we have this weary waiting and this personal disappointment that marks their lives. And yet, in, in the midst of all of this, as we look at the birth of John the Baptist through the lens of Zechariah and Elizabeth, I want us to, I want us to see three things. Uh, the first that I want us to see is I want us to see the, difficult, the difficulty of our waiting. As I mentioned, Luke paints this picture of, of both waiting and disappointment that marks the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth. We, we see it on a number of different levels. We see it on a, on a national level as Zechariah and, and Elizabeth are, are Israelites. They're from the people of God, the people of Israel, and they find themselves uh, having uh, come out of, of exile in Babylon back in their, uh, in their own land, so to speak, but yet once again, under the thumb of a foreign power, under the thumb of the Romans. It says that it was in the days of Herod, king of Judea, uh, that Zechariah served as a priest. Herod was a capricious man who was paranoid, killed his own wife and, and even children because of uh, fear of them plotting against him. We, we know that ultimately Herod would be so paranoid that at the announcement at the birth of Jesus, he would kill all the children to and under in the surrounding area of Bethlehem. Herod represented the, the Roman rule and, and represented the very struggle of God's people under uh, the, the rule of another nation. It says that uh, in, in the 
latter half of chapter 1 is Zechariah's song, which is called the Benedictus, uh, as, as he praises God for the announcement of the birth of his son and, and the way in which God would use him. He says that it's, uh, God has visited and redeemed his people, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. It gives you a glimpse of, uh, of what Zechariah experienced, what the people of Israel experienced on a national level, longing for God to come and deliver them from the hand of their enemies so that they might freely worship God. Not only is this true on a national level, we, we see that in, in glimpses and references that Luke makes, but we get a real sense of the personal uh, waiting and pain of disappointment that Zechariah and Elizabeth experienced. As it describes in verse 6, Zechariah and Elizabeth's uh, righteousness, their blamelessness. In verse 7, we see the uh, the sad truth that they are experiencing and walking through when it says, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Uh, they, they experienced barrenness. They had no ability to have a child, though apparently there was great longing for a child. And, and during uh, this time, and often has been the case, um, there, there was a sense of God's blessing uh, that accompanied the birth of children. And no doubt all children are a blessing from the Lord, and yet not all couples are promised to uh, indeed be able to have children. And yet uh, the people surrounding Zechariah and Elizabeth looked upon them as if they were somehow under God's curse, as God's blessing had been removed from them. Even though they were righteous and blameless, it says in verse 25 that the people looked upon Elizabeth with reproach. You can imagine in her younger years how they asked Elizabeth as she started to get a little bit older, isn't it time for you to have some children? And uh, and then as time went along, you know, hey, you know, things aren't, you know, you're not getting any younger. When When are you going to have that child? And and then as time went by, they, they maybe just didn't ask anymore, didn't make any comments, but Elizabeth knew. And, and in fact, when she heard news of God's promise that she would give birth to a son, it says that she, she thought of the Lord and said that the Lord had indeed looked upon her, had blessed her, and was taking away her reproach among the people. There was a real sense that accompanies uh, the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, a sense of personal disappointment, a pain uh, of uh, of not having a child, a, a sense of waiting and, and longing for this child and yet not having it. And then on a spiritual level, we see that God's people, as they are going about their practice of coming to the temple and worshiping, it has been 400 years since God has spoken through a prophet to his people. This was the, the condition of, of God's people. The last word they had heard from God, if you look at the last book of the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, <clears throat> that marked the last word that God's people had heard uh, from, from God. It said, For behold, the day is coming, Malachi 4 verse 1, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will stubble will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord. Remember the law of my servant Moses and the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, 
the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land when I decree utter destruction. God's people were waiting and longing for God to show up. They were a people who were remembering what God had done in the past, but who are waiting for God to speak a word in the presence, in the present. So on a spiritual level, God's people were waiting, longing to hear from God, wanting God to fulfill his promises, wanting God to see them in their suffering, and wanting God to act true to his word. So we see the the difficulty of their waiting. And, you know, I think in the difficulty of waiting, we we tend to um, respond to God in in one of two ways. There's certainly perhaps others that uh, we could could speak of, but, but these two stick out to me. I think sometimes in the weariness of waiting or the pain of disappointment, we forget God. We forget Him. We simply get wrapped up in the tyranny of the urgent with the stuff that's right in front of us. And, and we just kind of keep moving. Um, and somewhere along the way, we didn't try to forget God, but we just don't have much room in our life for Him. We don't have much room to think about Him, to, uh, to be uh, in His Word or to be with His people. And, and we just kind of get wrapped up in the moment and we forget about Him. But I think behind all of the forgetfulness of God in our busyness or in our discouragement or in our weariness is often something deeper than just the practical forgetting, but it's the spiritual doubting, uh, the asking, where is God in our waiting and in our disappointment? I think that's where we're tempted to doubt that God is really there, to doubt that God sees us. Does he really know? Does he really care? Is, Is he really going to do something? Does he really hear me when I pray? Does he have something to say to me? It's that, that sense of, of, of questioning. God, are you really there? If you're really there, God, then you would. And you fill in the blank with what you think God should do or how he should act on your behalf. I, I know that I've experienced uh, those doubts that, that creep in in my weariness and in the pain of my disappointment. Have you experienced those? Have you found yourself maybe wrapped up in what you're going through that you forget God? Or perhaps because of what you're going through, you question and doubt. Is God really there? Does he really care? I think for all of us, if we're honest, this year has provided plenty of occasion to forget God and to doubt God. Especially when we think about just our current moment, this holiday season, how it's been marked by so much difficulty and disappointment. For so many people, maybe not able to be with your family or not able to be with all your family or having loved ones who who are sick or or those who are older who, uh, for various reasons, have uh, need to to be distant from people. Perhaps you feel the the weight uh, of disappointment in in relation to uh, your your job and uh, maybe there's uncertainty about your job or maybe you're just weary from from what your job is asking of you. I saw a post online of of a doctor who was... Uh, just uh, <clears throat> was writing a post about uh, about some rest that he was getting. He said he, he realized that his Thanksgiving break was the first time in 2020 that he's had four days 
uh, off. Um, he's uh, up to this point not, not had a, an ability to take more than one or two days off at a time. There's a weariness that comes for some of us with our work, and then there's this maybe just disappointment that our work isn't what we would like it to be. We're struggling with our productivity. We're uncertain of the stability of our job. Perhaps we feel it uh, in, uh, in relation to, to health. Some of you have had uh, this terrible virus. Others of you have had family members who have had this virus. Others, uh, there's, there's real um, uh, other physical and, and health issues you're dealing with unrelated to this virus, and yet the virus makes it totally complicated to, to get the care that you need. Some of us just feel hemmed in by our circumstances, not able to do what we want. I know for, for those who have children, just the struggle of schooling, whether it's figuring out preschooling, is it on, is it off, is, you know, what, what about virtual school, what does that look like, how do I uh, educate my child, how do I care for them, their emotional, social well-being, their spiritual well-being. We all have experienced a lot of pain and a lot of weariness, a lot of waiting, a lot of disappointment this year. And in the midst of that, we have to ask ourselves, where are we looking? Are we forgetting God? Are we doubting God? See, Advent's a perfect occasion for us to admit in the weariness of our waiting and the pain of our personal disappointment it's a perfect time for us to stop and consider our need for God, to, to reorient ourselves, perhaps, to God again, to bring our questions to Him and to ask us in His tender mercy to meet us where we're at and to help us, to give us clarity about our circumstances that we're lacking, to give us direction about a decision that we need to make, to, to provide for us. Look, some, some have real provision that's needed in their life, maybe uh, you're like so many in our community are struggling with need for food or struggling with um, uncertainty as it relates to finances and all these other things. You, you need something to happen. And in the midst of all of this, the question is, where is God? And what we see in our passage and in the birth of John is uh, that, that, yes, there is difficulty in our waiting, but there is a God at work in our waiting. That's the second thing I want us to see, a God at work in our waiting. We see a number of things about God who's at work in our waiting. And the first is uh, jumping out at us and that God works in unexpected ways. You know, in many ways, the, the whole story of the birth of Christ can be uh, aptly described as unexpected. I mean, you, you think about what's taking place in uh, in, in Luke chapter 1 and, and even in chapter 2, we see that there is a, an old woman who's barren, unable to have children, who's married to a prophet, and that prophet goes into work, and, and he's a priest, and that priest, there's about 24 divisions of priests, and within those divisions, there's 1,000 priests, so that's a lot of priests, and they serve two weeks out of the year in the temple, and when you have those 1,000 priests who are serving those two weeks, they draw lots because there's only uh, two sacrifices a day uh, over two weeks. So that's only 24 times of these thousand priests. They draw lots for who's going to be the priest who goes into the temple that day. This priest who's married to this older woman who's unable to have a child gets selected to go into the temple that day. And there in the temple, he has a vision and an angel appears. And that angel tells him that his old wife who can't have children uh, is going to have a child to him, an old man. 
And that child is going to be a prophet. A prophet who's going to come and announce uh, the news of the Savior who's going to come. And, and that Savior is going to come about uh, through a miraculous birth to a virgin. Uh, who uh, is ma- who's, uh, promised to be married to a man named Joseph, who's from the line of David and from the small town of Bethlehem. And this promised Savior is going to be born to this virgin in this town of Bethlehem, not even in an inn, but in a, uh, in a manger fit for an animal. And to announce this birth to the Son of God, the, the, to announce the birth of the Son of God to the world, God goes and gets the most unexpected of people, the lowliest of people, the shepherds who are out on the hillside that day doing their work. And, and behold, they see angels, a multitude of angels in the heavens singing and praising God, telling them to go to Bethlehem and to see the Savior who's been born, the birth of the Son of God. And then those shepherds are the ones who go and tell everybody else that the King of the world has come. Talk about unexpected, right? Like that's, that's the whole story of Christmas, is the story of God working in unexpected ways. It's the story of, of the Bible, of God working in unexpected ways. And I think it's striking that not even Zechariah can believe what the angel announces to him. How can this be? How can it be that God would do this? When Zechariah and, and Elizabeth announce the name of their son, everybody is expecting, uh, we'll see this in, in a moment in, in verse 57, everybody's expecting them to name their, their son Zeke Jr., right? Like named after his dad. But they say, no, 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 that's not his name. God's doing something different here. His name shall be John. And all who heard it, it says in verse 66, laid these things up in their hearts saying, what will this child be? God works in unexpected ways. And I think for us in this year and in this moment in our lives, we, we are tempted to think maybe God isn't at work. You know, maybe in, maybe in like May, we were like, yeah, yeah, God can be at work in this. But now it's like December and we're like, ah, you know, I don't know. In the midst of our waiting, in the midst of our disappointment, God is at work in unexpected ways. Don't think that any circumstance or any trial is too difficult or too strange for God to use for his purpose. No pandemic is too difficult, too overwhelming for God to use for his purposes. We need to see in God's word a vision of a God who is at work in our waiting a God that's at work in unexpected ways. And what good news that is to us is that God isn't bound by our uh, limitations and, and by our ability to perceive what he should do or shouldn't do. God is working beyond all those things, not according to man's thinking, for his thoughts are not our thoughts. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. They're higher than our ways. God is working out his plan even in unexpected ways. And this God who's bigger than us and who doesn't need us and works beyond us in unexpected ways is yet also a God who hears the prayers of his people. It says in verse 10 that as Zechariah went into the temple uh, that the people were outside praying. A multitude of people were praying. And, and really verses 8 through 10 remind us of the worship of Israel this time. I, I mentioned earlier how uh, the priests were divided into divisions and they would come and two weeks a year they would serve. But when, when, they, um, when the people would come to the temple, there were two sacrifices a day. Sacrifices that reminded the people of their need for forgiveness and of God's provision 
provision for their forgiveness. But as they would gather to pray, they would say, God, hear our prayers, receive our sacrifices, and, and God, would you, would you come and deliver us? All of this was done in obedience to God as an act of worship and really a recognition for, for all of Israel that they needed God. And, and that they were asking God to, to remember them and to work on their behalf. And they did this. This isn't just like a snapshot of, uh, it's not just kind of a description of one time that they did this. But this was the practice of God's people. That they would gather to, to worship and offer sacrifices and to pray. And they kept on doing this even when they had no sight of how, of how God was going to work. They kept gathering. They kept praying. They kept asking God to receive their sacrifices and to remember his people. Not only is this true for, um, for Israel as a whole, but it's true for Zechariah. When the angel appears, when he's there in the temple doing his priestly duty of offering incense, it says in verse 13 that the angel um, appears and says, Do not be afraid, verse 13, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. Now, I, I don't think that this was just, you know, Zachariah and Elizabeth praying the night before he went in to do his priestly duty. Like, hey, you know, here's my shot. I'm going in to do my priestly duty. You know, let's, let's pray that God would give us a child. It says they were advanced in years. I'm sure that this marked their, their life um, to this point, their married life of praying and asking God for a child. God hears the prayers of his people. But also God keeps his promises. We see throughout uh, this chapter that really the sense of fulfillment uh, is what characterizes the birth of John the Baptist, indeed the birth of, of Jesus, that, that the central purpose of John's birth is to remind Israel that God had not forget, forgotten his promises, that he is at work the Messiah was coming and God was sending a prophet like he said he would, like Elijah who was going to come and prepare the hearts of God's people for the coming of the Lord. Remember Malachi, I just read it, but I just want to connect Malachi 4, 5 through 6 and Luke chapter 1, 16 through 17. This just shows you the sense of fulfillment that marks this passage. Malachi 4, 5 through 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, look at chapter 1 of the Gospel of Luke, verse 16 through 17. And he will turn, speaking of John the Baptist, many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. God is fulfilling his promises. He's keeping his word. It's coming about in a way that people couldn't have foreseen and, and was unexpected. And yet God is a God who not only works in unexpected ways and hears the prayers of his people, but he keeps his promises. 
and central uh, to the, the, the prayer and the song of Zechariah in, in verses 67 through 79. If you flip over there, uh, we I encourage you to read this in, in your home, and, and so I won't read it in, in full, but here in, in this song is, is really a uh, it's really a prophecy of sorts of, of what the Savior, what the Messiah is going to come and do and how God is going to use John uh, in this plan of redemption. Uh, and in verses uh, 67 through 79, there are no less than 16 direct quotations or indirect allusions to the Old Testament. It's like when Zechariah sings, he, he's been listening to the record of the Old Testament and he can't help but sing it in his own song. And, and he's just singing a song of fulfillment of a God who keeps his promises, that God's going to raise up a powerful ruler, a horn of salvation, not like a trumpet, but like a ram's horn, a, a mighty ruler and king from the line of David. He's keeping his promise to David, and, and he's going to keep his promise to Abraham to, to make his offspring great uh, and to make them into a nation and bless them, and through his offspring, bless all nations. God's faithful to keep his promise to Abraham. John's birth really is a testimony that God is on the move. I heard it compared to, in the Chronicles of Narnia, the, the beavers in the Chronicles of Narnia, who, who are, are the ones chattering about how Aslan is on the move. That maybe it won't always be winter, but maybe it'll also be Christmas. See, the birth of John is, is just like that. It's just this chatter, this announcement that God is on the move. After 400 years of being silent, he's sending a prophet, and that prophet is going to come and tell of the redemption that God is going to bring. And it's a redemption that holds out freedom. Uh, it shows us in two ways, this freedom from the oppression of Israel's enemies, as well as a freedom from their spiritual bondage to sin. And in fact, this is the, the, the tension and the struggle that God's people uh, experienced at this time, that the people of Israel experienced. They were longing for a king to come and deliver them from the hands of the Romans. And they were confused by Jesus who came and preached a gospel and, uh, of needing to be forgiven of sins. There is this longing for their national freedom and yet a need for their spiritual freedom. And God's plan was to, to make Israel a great and free nation, but it wasn't as an end in and of itself, but it was so that they could be a blessing to all nations. God, in verse 74 through 75, if you look there in chapter 1, says that he was doing all of this to grant us, according to the promise of Abraham and according to the promise of David, those are the two covenants that we see uh, in Zechariah's song, that, that we might, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. God's redemption that he had promised was so that he would have a people who would praise him, who would worship him freely, without fear and in righteousness and in holiness all the days of their life. And that's what God was going to do through the Messiah. See, verses 76 through 79 indicate um, <clears throat> that there was this focus that when the Messiah comes, he would deliver Israel from their enemies. And yet in verses 76 through 79, we see that Zechariah says that John is going to announce the uh, coming of the Lord, uh, preparing people for his ways 
Look at verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit on high and give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. You see, when we look at the whole scope of the Bible, we, we see often this tension of God's people longing for kind of a societal change and yet needing spiritual change. Uh, that we have these two dynamics and uh, God's promised redemption is going to come about one day when he's going to deliver his people, Jew and Gentile alike, from the hand of their enemies and all those who hate him, like it says here in Luke chapter 1. But the way he's going to do it is in sending a Messiah, sending a Savior who will deliver us from the bondage of our sin. In Christian history, we've, we've had times when we've gotten focused on one of these over the other, societal change versus spiritual change. And we need the scriptures to continually remind us of how they fit together. And the birth of Jesus does that. It shows us that God keeps his promised redemption, and that promised redemption comes about through Jesus Christ. And the birth of Jesus reminds us that our greatest need is the repentance of sin and the forgiveness of sin that comes by God's mercy through Jesus. That's the foundational need that we all have. And when I look at the Bible, I don't see a plan for the United States of America or a plan uh, for China or a plan for Sudan. I see a plan for God's people transformed by Jesus and who are then sent into the world as his ambassadors, reflecting the kingdom up to come while they live in this present age wherever God has placed them. See, the biblical review view of redemption is bigger and better than even what we envision. It's not just God saving souls as if our present reality doesn't matter, but it's, it's this bigger and better view where God begins with calling us to repentance and the need for the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. It's God preparing a people for himself. And then it's God guiding those people, the feet of those people, to live a life, as it says at the end, to guide our feet in the way of peace, to live in this world while waiting for our Savior and King to return, but seeking to be his ambassadors and reflect the age to come and the present age wherever we find ourselves. We have a redemption that's bigger and better than we could have imagined. And that redemption comes because we have a God who keeps his promises. And John's birth is showing us that God has kept his promise and he's sending a prophet like John in the spirit and the power of Elijah, like it was promised in Malachi, to announce and to prepare God's people for the coming of the Lord. And the coming of the Lord would come about when the second person of the Trinity took on flesh, and was born as Jesus of Nazareth. The mystery of mysteries, that God became one of us. You know, when we think about Advent, yes, we think about God keeping his promises, but I can't help but press into the fact that God is merciful. In fact, all throughout this chapter, if you look in verse uh, 58, when it announces the birth of John, it says, starting in verse 7, 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And it says, her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, 
and they rejoiced with her. There it is, mercy. And it says in, in verses uh, 59 um, through 64, it says that, uh, that God was, was, or that Elizabeth um, basically says he's not going to be named Zechariah. His name is going to be John. And the people are amazed at this, and they're looking to Zechariah like, are you okay with this? Remember, Zechariah can't speak because he doubted God. Um, and and Zechariah takes um, a pen and writes down, uh, his name is John. And his, at that moment, his mouth is opened up, and it's like his unbelief had turned to belief, and as soon as his mouth could open, he praises God. And the people were amazed at this. They knew that something different was happening, and that something different was happening was coming as a result of God's mercy. And in fact, in Zechariah's song, twice he says that this salvation that's come is come because of God's mercy. He says it in verse 72, and then again in verse 78, he says it's the tender mercy of God. And in fact, when they name John, they name him John, and the name means God has been gracious. All of this has come about because of God's mercy and his grace. See, I think sometimes when we think about God keeping his promises, um, <clears throat> we, we can forget that underneath his keeping his promises is his grace and his mercy. And, and we need God's grace and mercy. That's absolutely true. But, but I want us to, to be amazed, if we can for a moment, just that we have a God who is himself so gracious and so merciful. It would do well for you to consider how God has shown you his grace and his mercy this year. I can't help but preach this passage and not think about the specific way in which God has shown his grace and his mercy in our own family. Many of you know this story, and so I won't uh, drag it out, but uh, we went through a season after the birth of our first child where we were unable uh, to, uh, to get pregnant uh, at the, in the desired time uh, that we had hoped for in having a second child, and um, went through a situation where we ended up getting pregnant and uh, having an ectopic pregnancy and uh, the pain of that loss and the longing for a child. And uh, shortly before uh, our time of moving here to Michigan, we actually found out we were expecting. And once we found out that, that we were expecting a son, as we were thinking through the names uh, that we liked, um, one of the reasons that we chose John was because of its very meaning, that God has been gracious. And we know that God didn't have to be gracious to us in the way that he was. And God isn't always gracious to give every couple who longs for a child a child. And yet we couldn't help but praise God for his grace and his mercy and this birth of a child. And I can just imagine Zachariah and Elizabeth as they marveled at God, what God was doing on the personal level. They were experiencing the tender mercy of God. And on this broader level, God's bigger plan of salvation, they could see in their own experience of God's tender mercy that God was showing mercy not only to the people of Israel, but to all people who, who are disobedient, who would, who would hear the call of their son to repent and prepare their hearts for the Lord that could call on the name of the Savior. God's grace and his mercy. That's what really defines Advent, that God has been merciful to us, that God has been gracious to us in sending his son as a child who would grow up to be a man who would go to the cross and die in our place for our sins and rise on the third day. That's the God who's at work in our waiting. Let Advent be a time where, where you return your thoughts 
to this God, to the God who is at work in our waiting. And, and I think the, the final thing that I want us to see here is what it means to trust God in our waiting. See, the birth of John not only gives us the best news of God fulfilling his promises in unexpected ways, but it, it really shows us how to trust him uh, in the midst of this waiting, in the midst of him working in unexpected ways. And, and I just want to draw out um, a few points to encourage us uh, here at the beginning of Advent uh, of what it means to trust God in our waiting. And the first thing I want us to see is that in our waiting, <clears throat> in your waiting, don't allow your circumstances to dictate your walk with God. In your waiting, don't allow your circumstances to dictate your walk with God. Why do I say that? I say that because of the way uh, we see the introduction of Zechariah and Elizabeth in verse 6 uh, and 7 of chapter 1. It says that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all commandments and the statutes of the Lord. This wasn't meant to puff them up, but it was a recognition that they were faithful uh, to God, that they were walking in holiness. They were walking in obedience to the Lord. And yet, verse 7 shows us the great personal disappointment they were experiencing at the same time they were walking with God. They were without a child, barren, unable to have a child, and advanced in years. We see that their personal disappointment, their circumstance, didn't dictate their walk with God. How often, though, do we get it mixed up? Do we allow our disappointments? Do we allow our busyness to dictate our walk with God? Isn't it funny how, in some ways, for, for, for some of us in this pandemic, our lives have been really narrowed in, a, in, a, in significant ways. We, we don't have to do some of the things we did have to do, and yet we feel more tired and more busy than sometimes we felt before. And, and in that busyness and in that weariness, we, we don't have room for God. We allow it to dictate our walk with God. Or perhaps because of our discouragement, we just uh, are struggling with what it means to come to God. Even, even in trials and in suffering, that's not just true for this pandemic, but zoom out in life. Some of us experience trials and suffering, and there's this struggle sometimes of walking with God because of the trials we've experienced. And yet, God, as we've seen, is a God who works in unexpected ways and, uh, and is a God who keeps His promises and merciful to us. And uh, I, I came across this quote from J.C. Ryle, a, a former pastor, old pastor, who said, Let us take heed to the, that affliction does us good, as it did Zechariah. Here's Zechariah who, because he didn't believe God, was struck with silence for nine months. And, and upon uh, the birth of his son, uh, as he testifies that indeed his name should be John, when his mouth is open and he praises God, Ryle reflects, he says, sanctified afflictions are spiritual promotions. Let me, let me say that again. Sanctified afflictions are spiritual promotions. The sorrow that humbles us and drives us nearer to God is a blessing and a downright gain. No case is more hopeless than a man or woman who in time of affliction turns their back to God. Zachariah and Elizabeth didn't allow their personal disappointment, the pain of that, to dictate their walk with God. I, I pray that God would give us eyes to see our spiritual afflictions, our sanctified afflictions, as spiritual promotions. Not to make 
light of the pain, of the loss, of the suffering, but to see a God who's bigger than those things, to see a God who's at work in those things for our good, to accomplish his purpose in our life and to bring himself glory. During this Advent, perhaps you come to this Advent, to this point in time, having allowed the busyness and the distractions and the disappointments and the frustrations of this year to dictate your walk with God. Man, my prayer is in my own heart as well as in yours that God would use this Advent season to renew us, to return us to a longing for our Lord and an anticipation of what he wants to do in us and through us. Second thing I want you to see is in your waiting, don't stop praying. One of the most simple and yet profound practices in the Christian life is prayer. It's, it's really an expression of our dependence on God and a plea for God to act on our behalf. <clears throat> and when I, when I think about our need for prayer, I also think about how discouragement and busyness tend to be the things that keep us from prayer. They either drive us to God or they drive us away from God. And in fact, I would say a key indicator of which way you're going towards God or away from God is the presence or absence of prayer in your life. Let me say that again. One of the key indicators of whether you're being driven towards God or away from God right now is the presence or the absence of prayer in your life. Zechariah and Elizabeth were people who were praying for God to work in their lives personally and for their people. Do our lives bear that testimony? And I know it's, I know it's difficult. I know I found myself struggling at times to really focus in on prayer and to persist in prayer in some areas. Let me give you three simple encouragements, and they're really simple. Pray the Bible. Get into the Psalms. Use that as your guide to prayer. Make it your two-minute prayer for the day that you would just pray a psalm. Pick one, anyone. Open it up and randomly pick one or go through them um, according to the day of the week. <clears throat> and then just do it. I told you it would be simple. Just do it. Just pray. Whatever you got, give it to God. If it sounds weird, pray it anyway. If it sounds holy and pious, pray it anyway. If it sounds rough and childish, pray it. Just pray. Let's be a people who express our need for God and plead for God to act on our behalf. Would you pray for our church? Would you pray for people to come to know Christ? Would you pray for God to meet your needs? For God to provide wisdom or provision or direction? Would you pray for God to soften your heart? Would you pray for your children? Pray that God would work in them. Would you pray for your neighbor? Would you pray for your coworker? I sometimes wonder if we see God do so little because we ask God to do so little. God, help us in our waiting not to stop praying. And the third encouragement I would say is just journal it. Journal your prayers. Find, find a journal that you can just write out some prayers. It may be three lines. It may be a paragraph. It may be a page. It may be multiple pages. Whatever it is, write it down. Allow that to, to help you in the discipline of prayer. Prayer isn't this magical, mystical experience. Prayer is a discipline in the Christian life in which we express our need for God and we plead with God to act. Let's be a people who pray. And then finally, 
as we close in our waiting, I, I don't want you to think that God is done with you growing. Don't think that you're done growing as you wait on God. See, Zachariah and Elizabeth are a great example of God's people waiting. And, and in the midst of their waiting, God chooses in the most unexpected way at the most unexpected time to do a great work in their life and through their life. They would become the parents to the prophet who would announce the coming of the Son of God, right? Like no small thing that Zachariah and Elizabeth are stepping into here. And yet, even as righteous as they were, as they walked with God, as, as Luke tells us, Zechariah doubts God. I love how pastor and commentator Thabiti Anyabwile, he says, we can be righteous persons in the holiest of places, carrying out the holiest of acts of worship and not believe God. Unbelief is that sneaky. It can slither right into the middle of spiritual worship. We can pray for our heart's deepest desires and laced in the marrow of those prayers is sneaky unbelief. That was Zechariah, and that is many of us, he says. We wrestle with trusting that God is at work, trusting that God can use us. The birth of John and, and what we see in Zechariah and Elizabeth's life is a testimony of how God desires to use us, no matter where we find ourselves. Look, some of you are younger, going uh, through college or in graduate school, and you're thinking, uh, mostly about what's next, what courses you have next semester, what your first job is going to look like, the particulars, and, and all of that. It's sometimes easy to think that maybe you're going to wait for God to use you later, but you're just going to focus on you now. Let me encourage you, don't, don't think that God doesn't want to work in your life right now, even as you're waiting on what's next. In, in our church and, and here in, in Ann Arbor and the surrounding area, we have a lot of people who are in transition. They're here for a fellowship, a residency. They're, they're here for a little bit of school. Maybe they, they're starting a job and that job's going to move them elsewhere. There's this sense of transition. And in transition, it's easy to think that I'm not going to, to plug in and be a part of what God wants for me right here, right now. I love the quote of Jim Elliott. He said, wherever you are as a missionary um, <clears throat> who died uh, as a missionary, he says, wherever you are, be all there. Whatever you're doing, do, do it all to the hilt. Live your life to the hilt, trusting God to use you right where you are to do what he desires to do in your life. If you're in transition, don't think that God's work is waiting on the other side of the transition. Understand that God's work is right here, right now. He wants to work in you and through you. What a particular encouragement to those who are older. I love how the Bible helps speak to the older years. It says those uh, who are advanced in years. That's what Zechariah and Elizabeth were. There's a particular struggle in older years to think that the time has come and gone, that God's work is done, that what's best is just to settle in and settle down and hope for a smooth ride until the end. I, I want you to know, this is not just true for the younger years or the transition years. I, I want you to know in your older years, God desires and intends to use you. Zechariah and Elizabeth are a great testimony that no matter how advanced we are in our years, we're not too far advanced for God to use us. Take particular heart and encouragement if you fit that description, that God desires to use you and to work in you. Don't think that he's done with you. As we close... I think it's fitting for us to begin Advent by looking at John the Baptist. You see, in many ways, all of us should be like John the Baptist. 
Imagine your whole life, everything you did and everything you said wasn't really about you. Instead, your whole life, everything you did, everything you said was about someone else. When people think about you, they think about the one that you lived for, the one that your life pointed to. That was John the Baptist. John's life was summed up in the Gospel of John in chapter 3, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 30 in six words. He must increase, I must decrease. That's what John's life was about. Jesus was who he lived for. He came as the forerunner, the one who announced the coming of Jesus. In his whole life, he said, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. What a way to live. Jesus would say of John the Baptist that he was the greatest man to ever live. That God used him to the fulfillment of his prophecies and, 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 uh, and to prepare God's people for the coming of the Savior. John the Baptist is what our lives, John the Baptist's life is what our life is meant to be. We must decrease. Jesus must increase. Our life points to Jesus. Our life is about Jesus. Our life is centered on Jesus. And to live that life, we have to heed the message that Jesus shares, that John the Baptist shares about Jesus. See, John came with a message of repentance, a message of prepare your hearts for the coming of the Lord. And that's what we need. Yes, at Advent, we, we look to Christ, but it causes us to look back to ourselves and ask ourselves, have you prepared room in your own heart for Christ this Christmas? Are you ready for the Lord? John was asking him to be ready for the first Advent. I'm asking you if you're ready for the second Advent, for Jesus to come back. Is your hope rooted and grounded in Jesus' first coming, that he died for you and for your sins and rose from the dead? So that you know when he comes again, you won't have to face him in judgment, but you'll face him in joy, receiving the salvation that he has accomplished for you. Is that your hope? Do you know that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures and, and, and that fulfillment means your salvation, your forgiveness of sins, your eternal life? I would just encourage you as we close our sermon today that if you don't have a personal relationship with God, that today would be the day that you would confess your sins to God and you would, you would confess your trust that Jesus is indeed the Savior who died for your sins and rose again and you would give your life to him. You would say, God, make my life like John the Baptist. Let me decrease and you increase. And if that's you, that you would reach out to us and let us know so we could encourage you and celebrate with you what God's done in your life. But church... As we walk through our own disappointments and our own waiting, are you preparing room in your heart for God? Maybe now's the time to, to take stock of some of the things in our lives that we've allowed to distract us. You know, they say you can block the sun by holding up a quarter close enough to your eye. Some of us have allowed our troubles, our busyness, our particular trials and discouragements to, to be that quarter that we're looking at so closely that we can't see the sun. Zechariah said that the sun is coming. His name is Jesus, and he's rising like the sunset to bring light to those who sit in darkness. 
I think as a, as a church, we need to, to be reminded and encouraged to turn our eyes to Jesus, to take stock of areas of our life that perhaps we've, we've allowed to get in the way or for particular sins that we've held on to. And we need to repent to bring those to the Lord and to ask him to prepare room in our hearts afresh for him to do a new work uh, this, this Advent, this unexpected Christmas. We can be a people who expect God to work in us if we'll heed the call to repent and to turn to Christ, preparing room for him in our hearts. Let's pray.